This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Driving Outcomes, your source for inspired solutions to address the most pressing leadership concerns of today. On each episode, we examine the latest developments in applied research and education and how it impacts your business and social outcomes. Our host, Tracy Shirachi, brings you conversations with groundbreaking researchers, educators, and business leaders who are changing the face of leadership every day. And now, here's Tracy. Hi, everyone. I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Jack Eichler today. He's the Associate Professor of Teaching and Chemistry at the University of California, Riverside, and he's also a distinguished uh, teaching professor and chair of the UCR Academy of Distinguished Teaching. So Jack, if you could elaborate more for the audience and for our listeners, what does that mean to be the chair um, of the department and to, to be the distinguished teaching professor? And what are you set out to do? And how has the year um, in reflection looked for you in terms of both the pandemic, but just in general? Yeah, so First of all, I, my position is pretty distinct within a normal research university. So as a teaching professor, uh, I, I'm a, a ladder rank tenure track faculty member, um, but the UC system has this um, parallel category of teaching professors. And so we teach more. Uh, we have a, a larger teaching load than normal research faculty. Um, and oftentimes our research is focused on the scholarship of teaching and learning or educational research within our discipline. So that right up front is, is pretty distinct. Um, and so personally, uh, I used to do some chemistry research. Uh, my training is as a chemist. Um, and so I, I did mentor undergraduates uh, in the uh, laboratory um, and, and in kind of traditional chemistry research. Uh, but I've migrated over time into being more uh, purely educational research, so chemistry education. And so, you know, we can talk more about that later on. Um, and then within the Academy of Distinguished Teaching, uh, that's kind of a, a service appointment that I have been in for a few years. And then last year, I was uh, appointed as chair of this Academy of Distinguished Teaching. And so at UCR, uh, uh, this was created, I think, in the 80s, maybe the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, and it was just started as a as a way to form a group of faculty who are recognized for excellence in teaching. And then this group could then be a resource for instructors across campus. Interesting. And, yeah. And so we uh, so we basically hold workshops. Um, we will host guest speakers where the, the guest speaker is um, some way related to teaching or research uh, in in learning. Um, and then we also oversee two of our campus-wide teaching awards. And so we solicit nominations for those and we um, select winners for those annual teaching awards. And so, yeah, then as chair, um, you know, my goal is to chair of the Academy of Distinguished Teaching. Uh, my goal is to, you know, just try and improve the services that we provide for faculty. And so if we can provide, you know, just more hands-on workshops and giving our faculty the resources to help improve their classroom teaching. Um, that, that's, that's the primary goal. And it was just whatever we can do um, to help the student experience on campus. Cause of course that's our, our primary mission. 
Now, is the academy multidisciplined or is it just in the focus of chemistry or is it, it could be different types of subject matter? Yeah, the, the Academy of Distinguished Teaching is campus-wide. And so right now we have uh, members from our College of Natural and Agricultural Science or kind of a traditional um, science college. Uh, we have members from uh, College of Humanities and Social Science. And um, that's it right now. We hope to expand membership so where we can get um, faculty appointed from our engineering college. It's called the Bournes College of Engineering, uh, hopefully also from our School of Business. Mm-hmm. And we also now have an undergraduate program in education. So we have a graduate school of education that has now also started to run an undergraduate program. And so we hope to get uh, membership from there as well. And so ideally, we, you know, we will grow to where we have a representative from each college. But right now, it's kind of from the two main, um, the, the two largest colleges in our undergraduate um, program. But, know, I think science, but I think what's good is that you're looking at multidisciplines, so that there's kind of the teaching practices or collaboration going on across schools, so to speak, or different disciplines. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, of course, you know, there are some things that are kind of distinct for for science and yeah. also then distinct for humanities and social science. But of course, there are lots of areas where we can collaborate. So just getting ideas from our colleagues across campus is always good. Um, and, and then, of course, we want to be able to help faculty from across campus. And so having members um, uh, from both schools, from both colleges is important so that, you know, if we have someone um, from from uh, humanities and social science and there's a faculty who needs help then we've got someone who could you know maybe be um, more able to help them because they might teach in that discipline or a similar discipline but yeah but there's definitely there's definitely a lot of uh interdisciplinary work um you know especially when we we host workshops and and so forth and right now everything is being conducted virtually online with the exception of i understand lab work at the uc Yes. So in terms of teaching, actually right now, I'm pretty sure almost all teaching, including lab, is is remote. Um, We were originally going to have a process where if an instructor felt like they really needed to do an in-person instruction, they could apply for a waiver. But I think when the numbers, um, the, the caseloads got so high, I think they abandoned that. And so as far as I understand, even all of our laboratories, our undergraduate laboratories are remote. Um, they, we do have some field courses. So we, I know for instance, in geology, they have a, some field courses where uh, they basically go out um, into remote sites and do various um, um, modules out there. So I know there's some, some, some field courses that are in person and then our graduate research. So we, you know, we have, you know, of course, a huge graduate research mm-hmm. program. So graduate research. So those labs are open. Um, now, of course, they're working under modified conditions. So, you know, the number of people that could be in a lab at any given time is monitored. Um, you know, so just making sure that person to person contact is reduced. But yeah, but so for the most part, the research labs are going. Um, but the teaching labs right now are, are being done in a remote fashion as well. But that's kind of hard, right, for chemistry. I mean, I'm trying to think back to my days in chemistry where a lot of it is lab work where maybe 
you know, you'd have a partner back then and this time maybe you don't have a partner. So you're doing it on your own. But I mean, part of that learning is being able to see the physical interactions of the chemicals and being instructed through how to, you know, conduct the experiments, things like that. So how do it's almost like you need to do it in person, I would imagine. Definitely. And especially for upper division labs, uh, where there, there are a lot of techniques and a lot of, of instrumentation um, experiments that students do. And as a chemistry major, specifically, yeah, those students, like for them to not get those hands-on skills and that training, that's, that's, a, that's a big loss. Um, so that course that occurred in the spring for some of our students. And then this year it's, it's occurring again. So yeah, that, that is certainly a, something that's a challenge. I don't know um, what we can do for those students. You know, if, so if they're graduating in the spring uh, coming up here in 2021, um, my guess is that, you know, they'll just have to get more on the job training um, that, that they maybe didn't have to do before. Um, and I that's so, yeah, so, so for me, that's the biggest loss is for our chem majors in these upper division labs. Like they're just losing these, these critical experiences. And I think that's something for all of us in the world to acknowledge is it, it, even though we've kind of been put on this pause with the pandemic and in some cases people could find an alternative, the alternative is not necessarily ideal in terms of lost time. I mean, I was thinking about this other day, we're approaching almost one more quarter and we'll be a full year. Yeah. And a year in education is a lot. I mean, we don't think of it being a whole lot, but in terms of progress or in terms of um, like whether or not you're learning to read, it's simple as young kids learning to read. If they don't learn to read at a certain age within a year, that like the progression throughout the rest of their life has now been otherwise delayed. So I can almost imagine if you're a chem major, it's not quite maybe as critical as reading, but obviously, like you said, in losing a year and then getting hired by, you know, maybe a pharmaceutical company, whatever it may be, right. Yeah. And not being able to do something that they otherwise would have expected you to know how to do because you learned it in school. That's a huge gap to have to close, especially when the expectations in industry are pretty high. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, and for the most part, I mean, as an undergrad, they're going to get a lot of training, um, no matter how good of an undergraduate experience they had, there's always just going to be a requisite amount of on the, on the job training. Um, and so, and I, I suspect employers, you know, who are hiring are going to recognize, okay, so, you know, whatever, whatever skills we expected them to have in the past, there's probably going to be some deficit um, with, with this crop of students. Yeah, they like but, to retool them. I mean, employers like yeah. to retool hires, but I also could yeah. see like the more advanced yeah you are like you're losing that that year or more potentially of um that hands-on experience which you can't i mean i guess unless you send people home in their kitchens to, like, yeah to, yeah to do some of these experiments yeah unfortunately our you know the upper division right? techniques in our program those are just things you can't do at home yeah. now, you know, for lower division you know introductory courses um, you know, there, there actually, you know, there's some things you could, you could conceivably structure where you could have students do things on their own. Um, and, the, and the other thing for the introductory courses, I guess, I guess the one positive is that, um, you know, because we have so many non-chemistry majors, you also have to, to come through our program, at least they're not losing as much, right? So, I mean, you know, so for them to observe the various experiments that we tend to do in the first two years, 
um, just getting the observation and, and then having to think about, okay, what's, what's happening in this experiment, doing the data analysis, they're at least able to engage in that, which is kind of the most important part for those types of students anyway. Um, so I, I think at least there's a little bit less harm being done. Um, so as, as a biology major, um, you know, most of the techniques that you would learn in, in a gen chem or organic chem lab, you aren't going to do later on anyway. So I guess that's the one positive, but then, but then if you think about a biology program, there are lots of just basic skills like pipetting. Um, and there's some other techniques they do in biology labs that are really, they seem simple, but they're actually quite tricky. And if you don't do them well, uh, you can't carry out experiments. And so I really, um, hope that that doesn't negatively impact those programs and those students and those majors. Well, and I think that's what you're highlighting is the practicality aspect of it. You can all, like, you can watch videos, you can read text, you can do, but like until you do it and practice it yeah. and practice it enough times to become that expert, um, that's really where you get the experience from and you can't really replace that. I mean, I know one yeah. like number of friends that work in labs, They've been going to the lab every single day as an essential business, right? Like they haven't stopped. And I think of one friend in particular whose husband is a chemist and he actually does the um, additives for foods. So like whatever you taste or whatever you see in terms, um, that's his specialty. And he's been going, you know, nonstop. Nothing's changed for him in terms of, you know, going to work and showing up. So I could see, you know, even industry, there's an expectation that nothing has changed for many of the students, depending on if they make that, you know, if they decide to change into industry. And so how do you bridge that gap? Because something has changed. And I think what's interesting is some people acknowledge that we've changed, like this pandemic has changed people or changed things. And other times we also don't acknowledge what hasn't changed. It's kind of interesting as to what yeah. we, we consciously acknowledge has changed and what has Yep. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. But going back to something you were saying earlier in terms of educational research and also teaching, um, your role is interacting a lot more with the students, I imagine, in that teaching role, obviously, and less from the, when you're involved in research, just for people's reference, when you're involved more heavily in research um, at a research institute, there's less teaching involved. Is that the case or or can there be for some individuals an equal load of teaching and research yeah so the generally speaking i mean it, it, obviously there's a lot of variance from faculty to faculty but generally speaking the, the traditional research faculty tenure track line um uh, they would uh at least in science on in in the college of natural and agricultural science this is a typical teaching load but kind of like one undergraduate course per year and then, well, maybe one undergraduate lower division course, and then uh, one upper division undergraduate course, which is generally going to be in their sub-discipline of expertise. Uh, so in chemistry, we have like, you know, a, a several different sub-disciplines uh, where you kind of get specialized training just in that type of research. And so mm. um, we have then courses built around those disciplines. Uh, and then... Uh, one uh, research faculty would then typically do one graduate course. So that's kind of the, the typical teaching load is three courses. And that's how they try and split up um, the teaching load. Um, it's not always possible. So sometimes a faculty might do two lower division intro courses and then maybe one grad course, um, just depending on um, what courses need to be taught and, you know, 
like what faculty might be on sabbatical and so forth. Uh, then with a, with a teaching, well, and then, sorry, uh, and then that research faculty member would then spend, you know, a significant amount of their day-to-day um, work time devoted to just uh, overseeing their research lab, you know, so supervising their graduate students. Is that just during the students. summers, like when there's not a typical school year, or is that also during the school year? That, that's throughout the year. Yeah. So, so while they're teaching, right. So of course during this school year, they'll have that teaching load um, that, that they're working on. And then, but they're, but then once when they're not teaching um, or meeting with students for office hours and so forth, they're, they're basically focused on that research lab. So supervising their grad students, putting out publications, writing research grants to, to fund their laboratory and so forth. So, I mean, it, it, it's a, I think, uh, when I came when I came in as an undergrad, and I think for most people who maybe aren't as familiar with the university system, that's a shock. Like so, when I came in as an undergrad, yeah, I so thought that's my, a shock that you're describing to me right yeah, now. I'm just trying I, to yeah. remember um, my university days, but also I think of colleagues or friends or professors. That's a, that's a lot. Yeah. No. Yeah, you basically are doing two jobs mm-hmm. that that require a fair bit of expertise. Um, mm-hmm and knowledge and that have quite different um, uh, skill sets that are required and they have to do them well. Um, And you need enough time devoted to each, I would say, in order to really like from the research side, I could see like you need enough time for thought and creativity and kind of to allow your juices to flow, so to speak, to do research well. And then to teach, you have to be that think through your like lesson plans and and what you're going to teach your objectives and kind of evaluate how the students are doing or not doing and being good at that too. And that's exactly there's only 24 hours in a day. So it's like, when yeah. do you, when does one sleep? Well, and then, and then with the research on top of the science, the, the, they have to also basically be a human resources expert. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're a supervisor and you, you're managing people, as well. And that's a whole nother set of challenges that most of us don't get any training for, right? Because we were trained as scientists. Well, and um, to allow that information and that research to continue on when let's say an individual is teaching, it's you have to have the right people in place to ensure that they're able to carry on, even if you're not physically present there all the time to kind of tell them what to do or what needs to be done or things like that. Yep. And, and I think the other piece you highlighted on is the publications, the amount of time it takes to think to write, but to publish yeah. is um, that we're talking about like four or five different things here. I mean, in all. Yeah. So yeah. Well, and, then, and then writing a grant is a whole separate type of writing versus a publication. Right. So you're then you're having to create an idea for what the, what the research might do and what it will what problems it will solve and then how to pitch that in a way to convince people to give you money to do it. Um, so it's, it's writing, but it's a completely different type of writing um, versus when you do an, a typical research publication. But yeah, but I, I just, I like to tell people the story. So, you know, when I was a freshman in college, I had an assignment in my English comp class where I was supposed to go interview three different people in the job area that I thought I wanted to do. So of course I knew I wanted to teach so I decided I wanted to interview my chemistry professor. So I, I wanted to inter- interview. Smart, right? Teaching. Like to well, find I'm, out what it entails before yeah, you go well, down that path. <laughs> yeah. When I wanted to interview teaching at three different levels. So I interviewed my high school teacher and I interviewed my professor and I interviewed a grad student. So, so I go to my professor's office and I'm, you know, I'm like, well, t- you know, 
I'm, you know, how does this teaching work? Like, you know, what is your job? Um, like, and he's like, well, actually most of my job is research. He goes, I don't actually teach that much. Um, and so he explained to me, right. And then the whole, the whole process. And I was just like, what? Like, I, I didn't, I had no idea you did these things. Um, and so, yeah, and so when most people who aren't familiar with the university, um, actually look at what is it that, that these faculty do, it, it, it is kind of mind blowing. Um, it, it's, it's. It's impressive, but it's, it's also impressive, daunting. But I also I also understand why it's also very high stress and a different kind of it's a, it's a different kind of high stress. But it also I know even for myself as you're talking about it, um, it also my father was a PhD in engineering and he thought that he wanted to teach and he once told me that he went the private sector route um, because he enjoyed teaching but he didn't want to do the publications he didn't want to have to do. And I never, obviously growing up, I never really knew what that meant other than like, okay, dad just took a different career track and my mom being an elementary school teacher. So I've always been around education, but I've also seen a lot of friends who are professors, tenured professors, and I see what they go through too. And it's just, it's a different world. And then something that I'm, like you said, you're not aware of even when you were a student going to university. And then for those that, you know, become professors for yourself, you're kind of also doing both the research, a little bit of the research, but primarily focused on the teaching aspect of a research. I mean, in contrast to what you just described, how is your role similar or different to that? Yeah. So, yeah. So like I said before, I, I teach more. So my teaching load is about twice as much. I, I typically teach two undergraduate courses per quarter. Um, so I have a, a six courses per year. Um, I have taught an upper division course in my specialty. I'm, I'm, I'm an inorganic chemist uh, by training. So we have a course devoted to that. That's one of those subdisciplines of chemistry where we have an upper division course uh, devoted to that topic. So I've taught that. And then I've also uh, in the last few years taught some pedagogy seminars, right? So the seminars devoted to like teaching pre-service teachers kind of best practices of classroom teaching. Um, so I have done that a little bit. That's been I kind just of was going to ask you what peda- pedagogy is. Yeah. The, the, the basically methods of teaching. Um, it's a fancy word for methods of teaching. Um, so a little bit of that, but, you know, but mostly the undergraduate introductory uh, chemistry. Um, and so, yeah, so our teaching loads heavier, but then I still do this research piece, but my expectations and requirements for that aren't as high because mm-hmm. of, of the bigger teaching load. Also, uh, because I I did not get a startup budget. So another thing that most people don't know is that you know when I when I at least in science and in, in the hard sciences when a faculty member starts their career, the university gives them a, a a fairly substantial startup budget to get their lab going. Huh. Didn't so know that, that way that gives them some buffer time to to allow them to write grants, and so that they have this they have this then this budget that helps them operate the lab. Uh, in the meantime, while they're writing their their research grants. So of course, as a teaching faculty, I didn't get that. And so my research expectations are different. And then, um, you know, so I, I did undergraduate research only, so I didn't have any grad students. And I, I basically ran a very bare bones um, lab because uh, I didn't have much funding, but it was fun. And, you know, we published papers, um, so it was good. And then with the educational research, the nice thing about that is you can do that with very minimal overhead. Um, so, you know, a lot of the studies I've done are kind of based on things I do in my classroom. And mm-hmm. so you can do, these are called quasi experiments. So, you know, basically 
um, experiment you're running with live classes. So you can't do like, you know, randomized assignment of participants and you can't do proper, you know, negative controls mm -hmm. uh, necessarily, but you can still do some, um, some good experiments and comparing, comparing different methods of teaching. And so that doesn't require much overhead. I can do most of that on my own. Um, and, and then, you know, publish the results. So, yeah, so it's a, you know, slightly modified, um, a balance. So I would say like a typical research faculty, the balance is probably like 60, 40 research teaching and then mine is the opposite. So it's probably, you know, 60, 40, where 60% of mine is teaching with 40% research. But I think what's good um, is you kind of highlighted like two separate tracks, so to speak, that maybe even individuals on this podcast, I can think can understand like that there are different kind of career tracks to be a professor and it doesn't all have to look the same. And I think at the same time, like I was just going to joke that even for parents that are paying tuition, now they know what their tuition money helps go to because it's not just their kid learning in a classroom, but it's going to the research aspect. Yep. And that's, you know, I think now that I think about it too, it's kind of the main distinction between a research university from university and colleges that are not research focused. It doesn't mean they don't do research, but the extent to which um, different colleges or universities do research may vary too. And there's kind of a blur going on too, I think as more um, you know, colleges and universities try to do more research or try to seek funding for research. And so there's definitely like a conversion going on and some changes going on in the landscape. But um, I think that's pretty interesting for individuals to acknowledge too. Oftentimes, because I hear friends that talk about how much their kids' <laughs> education is costing, but they don't yeah. really know why, right? They're thinking like, you know, and the comment today is more around, I'm paying for my kid to learn virtually, right? Instead of being present and having the college experience that they otherwise ha would have that we'd pay for. So yeah. I think it's worth noting that a lot of the dollars that are going are contributing to research. And I think that's important. Yeah, because it's not only important to new technologies, new innovations, new new practices, but it's also that's that's how jobs emerge are based on new industries and yep. new practices. And oftentimes we don't think of it that way. Yeah. When and if you just just at UCR, if you look at it uh, in isolation, you know, we have a school of medicine and we have a very big medical research um, program. And so faculty doing, you know, research related to cancer, um, you know, Alzheimer's, you know, various diseases, um, and, ju and just also research into just best practices of clinical medicine and so forth, right? So those, all of those things have a huge impact um, uh, on, on our community, right? And on, on society. Uh, and then at UCR, most people may not know, uh, but we're actually quite famous for our um, agricultural research. We have a huge citrus research program because uh, UCR actually started out as a, a USDA uh, Department of Agriculture Research huh. Center, Didn't and then know it the was of that. and then it was converted to a UC um, in the fifties. And so we, but we maintained all of that citrus research, and so developing new hybrids of various um, citrus. Um, and so, as I understand it, the cutie, so the little yeah, the my daughter cutie, loves those. She actually, since she's been two years old, she's been able to peel them. Th those were apparently those were apparently invented at UCR. I think we oh. still get royalties on that. Um, and oh, I think the really? yeah, and then the navel orange 
uh, I think was, it was started in Riverside. I don't know if that was a UCR invention, but it, it's, a, it's from Riverside. But probably um, the, um, the Satsuma, but there's one that's like, not the samurai orange, but it's like really huge. Like it looks like a Satsuma that's like a samurai. They call it like, oh, I can't remember the name right now, now that we're talking, but I'm, I bet that was probably invented or thought through. There, there's a good the chance. Yeah. If it's an unusual citrus, there's a good chance it came from UCR. That one I don't know about. So I don't want to speculate. It's like this huge, like, <laughs> it looks like a huge Satsuma orange yeah. and it's almost supposed to be like, you're supposed to associate it with like the samurai, like a huge Satsuma <laughs> samurai. But, and then the, the other thing that UCR is famous for kind of related to the, to the citrus and agriculture research is our entomology, our, our bug program. Huh. So we also then have a lot of research. So they've done research like, so if there's a pest that's out like in, in nature, that's, in, that's impacting citrus growth. Um, so there's a lot of research that you started to try and find, well, how can we minimize, um, you know, um, various pests that might be impacting citrus or other agricultural um, yields. Uh, so yeah, so our entomology program is huge. Uh, I've actually got some colleagues. I used to run a, a freshman seminar mm -hmm. on like a general research seminar where I would invite faculty to come to come talk to the students about their research. So I would bring folks in from all across campus. And so I met some folks in entomology who do research on bees. And so there, I know huh. a couple. I know a couple of uh, folks who their whole research program is designed to figure out. You know, what are the bee populations looking yeah. like? How are they changing? Are there are there things that we're doing as humans that are negatively impacting the natural bee populations and migrations and so forth? Um, which again, most people don't realize, but that's critical to our critical foods, to our, to our food. Well, and uh, I think people are being like, especially on the food supply and delivery side, right? People are being more informed as to the benefits of different types of honey. And yeah. that not all bees are the same, but like different types of honey has certain vitamins and nutrients in it that, you know, now we're selling not just honey to sweeten things to put it in your tea or, or on your, you know, bread type thing, but it's like eating honey has benefits, health benefits. Too. Yeah. Yep. But I think oh, so, yeah. I was going to ask you is, do you have, have you seen like the university do presentations for high school students? or younger so that they can be more informed of professions and jobs in these areas and, this, and the significance and importance. And so the greater awareness for K through 12 to really understand um, what's going on in the sciences in particular, because I think it'd be interesting for young kids to learn about different types of honey and you know their ability to absorb information is, hundred times faster than us as adults. And so it's making them more aware of different fields of study so that they don't go into college trying to figure that out, but also at the same time being limited in what they think exists. As yeah, the, we do a ton of, of outreach in different ways. Um, so uh, at least in the sciences, there's a, the National Science Foundation, the NSF has a, a grant program called the Career Grant and it's a, a fairly large research grant that faculty uh, attempt to get during their first five or six years as a faculty member. So it's usually for untenured faculty. And so we, I, I bet on average, we get about 10 of those funded per year, maybe more um, across campus. And this is an all 
disciplines of science, but those career grants have a requirement uh, but that they call broader impacts. And so that when you write a career grant, um, uh, our faculty members have to include a broader impacts um, program and it usually has some sort of outreach. So anyone on campus who's gotten a career grant is very likely that they're doing some sort of outreach with our local high schools and middle schools uh, and elementary schools. So there, so there, the idea is exactly what you're saying, you know, showing to the public what it is that we're doing and why is the research important? How can we relate it um, um, to, the, to the broader community? And so that's, that's a big piece of it. Uh, and then we also have, you know, on campus, um, a lot of tours. So we invite student groups to come to our campus. Uh, and so, and so, you know, in our, in our citrus program, we have a, I guess we have a museum. So we have like a museum curator of our citrus. Um, I, I guess they call it like a collection, you know, cause it, where they talk about all the different hybrids that they've developed uh, in our, in, in our citrus research and so, yes yeah, so it'll bring groups in and this curator will give tours um you know and again explain you know to, to to students you know what it is that we're doing here at ucr and how it impacts them um and of course also talking about how you know there are lots of jobs i mean agriculture mm -hmm. the agricultural industry is huge oh it's um, huge and we don't acknowledge it all the time i think it's really yeah it's so there's huge. lots of job opportunities there um where 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 there's a demand for higher education mm -hmm. degree holding students, you know, not, mm -hmm. not just, um, you know, entry-level workers, but, you know, having students who've studied uh, the agricultural sciences mm -hmm. um, and yeah. So, yeah. So, so I think the university does a good job of promoting uh, what it is we're doing and how that um, benefits the public. Well, I appreciate you mentioning that because I feel like right now I want to just take my four-year-old and my one-year-old and come out there and check out the oranges and the citrus because no doubt like my kids love it and they've learned to love citrus fruits since they were little. So I think, you know, making the public aware of what resources are available, but often, you know, education starts when we're young yep. and it doesn't necessarily always mean just studying a book per se, but it's the exposure. And I think, as parents and, you know, individuals, they worry oftentimes, like, is science lacking in the formal education environment from K through 12 because of state funding or, you know, just what happened to field trips? Well, and especially right now, <laughs> the museums yeah. are closed, you know, like everything is shifting and changing. So I appreciate you mentioning all of that and your time, Jack, just to share what's going on at UCR, but especially in your division, in your expertise, so that individuals can learn and hear about it and, and find ways to support you and others. Yeah. I really appreciate your time. Okay. Glad it was, it was great to be here. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Driving Outcomes. If you'd like to listen to or download other episodes of Driving Outcomes, go to EWNpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast networks. Please also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn as The Mark USA. We hope you'll join us again next week for more conversations with today's leaders who are driving for results and achieving phenomenal business outcomes.
Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why is it so hard to make a buck? <laughs> I know I have. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. What I have discovered after going from the brink of bankruptcy to running a multi-million dollar award-winning business is this. You can't build a million dollar dream hanging around minimum wage mindsets. My mission is one million women entrepreneurs generating $1 million in annual revenue. So here's what I've done. I've created the mother of all entrepreneur success programs that you can access online on your time. It's called Monetize Me Now. It's a seven module online course that is 100% my success formula, covering mindset, mission, management, motivation, marketing, and measure. Come on, take my hand and I'll show you the way to learn to earn flowing revenue for your business. Visit monetizemenow.com for details. Calling all speakers. eWomen Network has speaking engagements all over North America that must be filled. Are you a gifted messenger, author, expert, or successful entrepreneur that can help women entrepreneurs grow their businesses? Our mission is to help 1 million fulfilled women each achieve $1 million in annual revenue. If you're a speaker that can help women prosper, go to eWomenNetwork.com and sign up as a pro member of our Speakers Network. That's eWomenNetwork.com. Thanks for listening. This is the EWN Podcast Network.